How does the gospel relate to good works? Aren't we saved by grace and not by works? And if so, what place, what role, what part does good works have in the life of God's people? Isn't the exhortation or command to holy living legalistic? Is it heaping burdens upon people, sinners? Or does the gospel and good works go together? Well, if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that you understand that good works are a part of the gospel. (laughs) While we are not saved by our good works, we are saved for good works. We are saved that our lives might be changed, transformed from one to another. From a life of sin and rebellion to a life of willing obedience and submission to God's word. And as you think about the relationship of the gospel, how one is saved, and good works, how one behaves, I hope you're thinking about how does that happen? How do you grow to becoming more holy? How is it that you, as a Christian, regardless of where you are in that journey, whether you are a new Christian or you have been journeying with Christ for many decades, you and I should be growing in godliness. We should be growing in holiness, growing in good works. Well, regardless of where you are in that continuum, how do we grow in good works? Is it passive? You know, something we just that happens to us? Um, that's often defined in a let go and let God uh, holiness theology. Or is it something that we participate in? Something that we do along with God? How does God hope to make His church holy? How is it that Christ's bride becomes that spotless lamb? That beautiful bride that we're told in Scripture about. Well, friends, this letter of Titus helps address these questions. More than that, it helps us understand what a church should be and do. It helps us get a glimpse into the life of the local church, a local congregation like ours. So Paul is writing a letter, and we're going to consider the next three weeks this letter. Now, um, uh, three years ago, I taught uh, very systematically and patiently through this on a Wednesday night. We are not going to be able to spend as much detail as I did in those sessions um, because you would be frustrated with me by the already long sermons that I preach. And so to keep the sermon short, we're going to give an overview of this letter to, I hope, give you an appetite uh, for considering what the Bible teaches about a Christian and about a church and about how a church is organized and the way a church should be led. 
And, and so to give you just a, a sort of big 30,000-foot view of this letter, I hope you have it open. If you don't, get it open. Look at it. It's really short. I commend you to read this letter throughout the next three weeks. Um, I promise you it looks fairly short and won't take you long. There's no big words that will trip you up. Um, it will take you a matter of five minutes to move through this letter um, and to consider all of its riches. But just to give you an overview, um, you could organize this in three points. Number one, leading for godliness. Chapter two, teaching for godliness. And chapter three, redeemed for godliness. That is, that God has given leaders for the local church to lead in godliness, to lead you to godliness, to teach you for godliness, and then you've been redeemed for godliness. In other words, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you have been created. You are God's creation, a workmanship of Christ. You are a work of godliness. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus, uh, as the title implies. This letter is written to Titus, uh, his partner in ministry. And Titus really served Paul in several ways. Uh, Titus was Paul's hitman. Now, not in the way that you would think. Uh, Titus had a certain skill set to go into very difficult congregations and difficult experiences and work towards unity. See, it was Titus that was sent to Corinth when Corinth was uh, in, a, in, a, in a heap of trouble and a lot of mess, and they were disunified and they were rejecting Paul. He didn't send old timid Timmy down there to, to Corinth to straighten things out, but rather he sent Titus down there to collect the offering because Titus was a lion of a leader. Uh, Titus had this ability to lead change and challenging situations. And, and what Paul sends him to in Crete, this, this is where Titus is going to, going to shepherd, in Crete, things were a mess. The, the community was a mess. The culture was a mess. This, these were dark days, difficult people. And he sends Titus in there to bring about change, to bring about transition. And Paul begins his letter by affirming and defining again his relationship to Titus. He's reminding Titus of who he is and affirming Titus's role. His hope here, uh, this letter, if you will, if you think about it, we're kind of reading private correspondence. Uh, this is a private letter, but it's also a public letter. It's private in that it was written to affirm his support for Titus, to encourage Titus, to say, hey, look, it's going to be bad down there in Crete. just want you to know uh, those folks are wild down there. They're unruly. They're insubordinate. They won't listen to you. Uh, they'll call you all kinds of strange names, uh, but it's all right. I am giving you my authority to go down there and get things in order. But this letter is also public. It was meant to be a, a warning a shot, a warning to the false teachers that had crept into the church. You see, down there in Crete, these were all new Christians. These were new churches. New congregations began to form there in Crete, and, and immediately the enemy, Satan, saw this as an opportunity to, to send in his workers, false teachers, began to go into these small congregations in Crete and begin to corrupt them. And begin to lead them astray. And particularly teaching them that 
holiness is unimportant. That godliness is not a part of the gospel. That godliness has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and and gave them over to, to vain idols and works rather than grace. And so Paul writes to his true child, one who he has raised in the ministry, one whom he has shepherded, one whom whom Paul himself has invested in and now is sending so that Titus will invest in others. This letter is wonderfully, beautifully crafted in such a short way, but yet brimming with truths about who God is, who you are, and how we should do church together. So I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to consider this chapter this morning, in our time this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. What's the point of this chapter? Summarize it in this way. Jesus Christ has called, equipped, and provided a plurality of elders to lead his church toward godliness and to guard them against ungodliness. I'll say that again to summarize this. So I've got you here in the beginning, so I hope to keep you throughout, but if, but if I lose you, you'll at least have the point of the passage. Jesus Christ has called, equipped, and provided a plurality of elders to lead his church 
toward godliness and to guard them against ungodliness. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to convince you, I hope to prove to you from this chapter, of our biblical need for a plurality of godly leaders in the local church. In other words, your pursuit of holiness depends upon this. Your growth in godliness depends upon godly leaders leading you in the local church. And so our passage this morning presents to us three needs that every one of us have. First, you need a gospel that leads to godliness. Paul begins his letter with that opening paragraph where he um, introduces the letter and introduces what he's going to talk about. And what he wants you to, to get from the very beginning is the foundation of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verses 5 through 9, you will see there that you need godly leaders to lead you in godliness. You need godly leaders to lead you in godliness. And thirdly, you need godly leaders to guard you against ungodliness you need godly leaders to guard you against ungodliness well let's begin very briefly here in this first point i will develop this point more in week three as chapter three really unfolds what he is talking about here in the beginning but let's begin you need the gospel that leads to godliness the short of it is this Godliness is impossible apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're only spinning your wheels. You're only changing your behavior. You are not being transformed into the image of Christ apart from the gospel. Notice what he says here. He begins with an, an authoritative message. To be clear here, Paul identifies himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He understands that he works for God that he answers to God, and that he's been sent by Jesus. An apostle was one who was sent by Jesus, who had the authority of Jesus, that spoke on Jesus' behalf. That what this apostle says is as if Jesus of Nazareth said it. And so when we read this letter, we read this letter as if that, that Galilean accent is coming through in this letter. That Jesus himself is writing this. So as I appeal to this and say, you know, Paul said this or, or Paul said that, I want you to hear Jesus is saying authoritatively this morning that this is how his church is to be organized, that this is what you need to give yourself as a congregation to. So this comes as an authoritative word. This comes as one who works for God and one who represents God. Paul says that he is writing here to instruct God's elect Paul's purpose in writing is threefold. First, we see in verse 1, he's writing for the faith of God's elect. The false teachers were upsetting their faith. Were causing them to doubt the promises of God. This is why Paul says that God is not a liar, but keeps His word. Because they were doubting that very fact. The false teachers had taught them that God would change His mind. That God was a liar, a deceiver. It's interesting that the very thing that Paul says about God, that he doesn't lie, is the very character 
that the false teachers themselves were unwilling. Right? They are said to be insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. But not God. And so Paul is writing this letter to shore up, to encourage the faith of God's elect. Verse 1, we also see not only for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but also their knowledge of the truth. Then in verse 2, their hope of eternal life. Faith, hope, and love are often the, the three triads that Paul uses. Here he uses faith, knowledge, and hope. Three components of the gospel. We come to Christ by faith, but it's through the knowledge given to us, through the revelation, through the preaching of the gospel. Our minds are changed. Right? The gospel doesn't come to us passively. We must consciously consider the truths of the gospel and come to a conclusion about who Jesus is claiming to be. And so he's writing for their faith and knowledge, but you see here, writing also for their hope in verse 2. All of this is connected to that little phrase there in the middle. So if you have your eyes, just look at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Notice right there, accords with godliness. The CSB has it translated, leads to godliness. And in other words, Paul is writing so that their faith and knowledge would be true and lead to godliness, which then results in hope. Hope of eternal life, which God promised. Our hope is in God's promise of eternal life, a promise that was formed in God's redemptive plan, he says, before the world even began. The gospel is grounded in eternity past. It is, it is not changed through the passage of time. It does not grow old. It does not grow weary. It does not wear out. The gospel is good today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. Our hope then rests surely on this knowledge about God. That He is true and trustworthy. That's why we can sing a song like He will hold me fast. When we don't have a hold on Christ at all. Why we can sing that when my love for Christ grows cold, He will hold me fast. In other words, what's keeping you in eternity is not your faithfulness. It's not your obedience. It's not your love for God. It's His love for you in Christ. Our hope rests surely on this God knowing that it will come about, not because of our faithfulness or our ability to keep, but because God is faithful. He keeps His Word. Even when we can't, He keeps it. The whole Bible could be summarized in promises made, Old Testament promises kept, New Testament. God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps His Word. And this truth-telling eternal God is promised eternal life. This is the foundation of our hope in the Gospel. This is our hope that, that we know that, that beyond a shadow of doubt, regardless of how unholy we are, we shall one day be holy. That's why we can sing a, that opening hymn that our sins, they may be many, and there's, there are many, but His mercy is always going to be more. Paul's contrasting here their, the past reality of the gospel and their present hope they have. Brother or sister, I want you to know today you can have this hope. 
Hope is not something that's, that's going to come in eternity. The promise of eternal life is for today, not just for eternity. Without the gospel, no one will be made holy. It is only through the death of Christ and through His resurrection, by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, that's the only way you will be free of your sins and pursue holiness. Do you desire to be holy today? Are you tired of your sin? Does it, does it cause you to, to be weary? Frustrated? Man, I just want to get I'm tired of this. Friends, that, that freedom that you, you so long to desire and to have comes only through Christ and only through the gospel. Without the gospel, no one will be holy. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have the hope of holiness, the hope of eternal life. That this God who never lies promises you something this morning. You will be holy. Whether you like it or not, it's part of the gospel. You're going to be transformed. And that is our hope, that is our joy, and that is our foundation. Well, let's get into the heart of this. Let's look at these next two points. You need godly leaders to lead in godliness. Look at me again in verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, Titus. This is your job. This is your mission. Here's your responsibility. Here it is. I love it when the Bible's so clear, right? It's almost I don't really need to say anything. So what you're supposed to do, Titus. Here's, what, here's, here's your job. It's your job description. I want you to put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. Titus had a, a straightforward, not easy, but a straightforward mission. He was to organize the church, and he was to do that by appointing godly leaders. That's what he's saying. And then Paul goes on to give instructions about these leaders. and who he... So the church of Jesus Christ needs to have proper leaders. When the church is without proper leaders, things go crazy. <laughs> if you've ever been a part of a congregation with an ungodly pastor... Oftentimes, the church becomes ungodly. A church becomes their, what their pastors are. What their pastors love, the church loves. It's truth. But simple, in fact, truth. That if you do not have godly leaders, the church will be a mess. But I want you to look at something very clearly here, because I know the majority of y'all in here this morning are Southern Baptists. And us Southern Baptists have got a few things wrong, particularly verse 5. Many years ago, Southern Baptists began to read over verse 5 and other verses like it, particularly because of the frontier work going on in our denomination a hundred years ago. We began to neglect the obedience of this particular text. And I want to show you something here this morning. Look at verse 5. He was to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was to appoint elders. Notice, plural, elders. He doesn't say, I want you to put a pastor in every town. I want you to put an elder in every town. No, he says, I want you to put elders in every town. If you have your Bibles open, just flip over a couple pages. And I want to show you something here about this word elder. Because if you're a good Southern Baptist, 
You're like, those are the Presbyterians down the street. They're not here. <laughs> Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to straighten this, uh, word, this, this language up real quickly here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you. Same word. Presbyteros. Elders. Same word that Paul's using to Titus. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, pastor the flock of God that is among you. In other words, the word we get for pastor is the Greek word here for shepherd. A pastor is a shepherd. Right? You, you know that, right? Southern Baptists are like, oh, yeah. Exercising oversight, episkopos, oversight, an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over, the, over their charge, but being an example to the flock. What I want you to see here is that Paul, or, or Peter, excuse me, uses our, the common words that we often associate with church leaders is what? Elder, pastor, bishop, right? And Paul uses those words, or Peter, excuse me, in 1 Peter 5, uses all three of those words interchangeably to refer to the exact same office. So an elder is a pastor, a bishop. So if someone comes to you and they're like, you know, I'm bishop so-and-so, well, he's just really confused about church, or, you know, church uh, governing and things like that. But the, the point is this, a bishop and a pastor and an elder were all the same office. It wasn't a hierarchy. There wasn't, you know, bishops were over the, the, the elders and, and so on. That, that's, that all came later. That was a New Testament. What I want you to see this morning is when I use the word elder, you hear the word pastor. Okay. So Paul is telling Titus, I want you to go into these towns in Crete, and I want you to put a, a plurality of pastors, a, a, a group of pastors into each of these churches. Everybody tracking with me now? He is to go and appoint elders, plural, in these churches. Back to Titus, you'll see in, in verse 7, he uses the word overseer. Um, episkopos. Episcopal, right? They get that from their governance because they have bishops, right? The point I want you to see this morning is this, that God's design for the local church is not to be ran by one elder, not to be led by one elder, but by a plurality of elders in the local church. My question for us this morning, then, is why we don't. If the clear teaching of Scripture is that God's church is to be governed, God's church is to be led by a plurality of godly leaders, why does Catonsville Baptist Church not have them? What we want to do as a congregation is think about how we can be faithful to this text how we can obey this text. But before we obey this text, we have to know what a pastor is. And so did Titus. So Paul writes to Titus and he says, look, I want you to put the proper leaders in authority in the church. But here's the deal. I don't want you going down to the local you know, uh, business center. I don't want you going down to the business school looking for the, the guy who has all the leadership credentials. You know, the visionary leader, the entrepreneur, the one that can really get things done, the charismatic type. But I want you to go and find men who are godly. And men who can teach others to be godly. 
I don't want you to go and look for the most prominent in the church. I don't want you to go down there to those churches in Crete and find the, the richest men in the church and say, oh, those are our leaders. They got the most money. No, I want you to go down there and I want you to find not the guys with seminary degrees, not the guys with PhDs. I want you to go down there and I want you to find the guys who are holy, who've given themselves to godliness and Christ-likeness who love Jesus and love His Word more than the riches of this world. I want you to go down there and I want you to find men who can teach others to follow them and lead them in holiness. I want you to go down there and find proper leaders. And so in our text this morning, we see two qualifications for an elder and a pastor. A pastor must be godly and a pastor must teach. A pastor must be a godly man, and Paul helpfully defines what that means here, but he also must be one who can teach. Twice in the text, if you look with me in this, this list, twice, verse 6, verse 7, the umbrella word is above reproach. The kind of leader that needs to lead a local church is one who's above reproach. He needs to be one that's not sticky. What I mean is this, that accusations don't stick to him. He needs to be the kind of man that when, when just a whiff of impropriety or a, a whiff, no one believes him. People are shocked in awe to hear such things. A man who is above Reproach. God's church needs to be led by men who live lives that are above reproach. Very quickly, I want to show you two things here. Verse 6, he needs to be above reproach first at home. If he doesn't have his home together, Paul says elsewhere, how the heck is he going to have the church together? First, we see in the text that he has to be a husband of one wife. Literally, this means he needs to be a one-woman man. Now, I know this has confused some, particularly in regards to deacons. This does not mean that, that he uh, can't be divorced. Now, if he's divorced, you know, that may be contextually a certain issue we need to look at. That's not what Paul's talking about here, though it surely implies that. Paul knew the word for divorce. Divorce is too narrow. Because, you see, you can have a guy who's been faithful, quote-unquote faithful. In other words, he's never divorced his wife, but he's been unfaithful to her in many other ways. You see, our standard must not be merely that he wasn't divorced, but the fact that he has been faithful to that one woman for all of their marriage. Now, does that mean that, that an elder has to be married? Does that mean a single man can't be an elder? No, clearly not. Right? Jesus would be disqualified, uh, as well as the Apostle Paul. Uh, so Jesus couldn't even be an elder in his own church. Uh, very confusing, right? No, no. The norm is to have, of course, the church have elders that are men who are uh, that are that are husbands and have children, all those things. But of course, most recently, John Stott was, was a single man all of his life. What we need to realize, though, what I want you to hone in here on this one-woman man thing is that, is that Paul is pointing out a man who is faithful at home with his wife. A man who has been faithful. A man who has her and her alone in his gaze. That's why the literal phrase really sticks well. A one-woman man. A singular woman in that man's life. 
But also we have this statement about his children, and this has kind of confused a few people. It says that his children are to be believers. Now, if you look at your little footnote in the ESV there, it says, or be faithful. Literally, what the text is saying is that he needs to have children who are faithful. I do not believe that pastors must have believing children, okay? Um, because I would be disqualified from being your pastor right now, all right? Because I'm pretty sure that my 18-month-old is not a Christian, all right? And she may be sweet to, to, to hang out with, but let me tell you, she needs Jesus, okay? <laughs> so what's Paul's point? Well, he says it. They are to, to not have the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You see, contextually, what was going on there was the false teachers were known for their insubordination. They were known for their, their free living, their debaucherous lives, free living. They're kind of a wild lives. And if an elder has children who are unwilling to submit to his, his care and shepherding at home, how will he get these false teachers in line? Now, to be clear, Paul is referring to children. The word he uses there is children in the home. So we're not talking about grown children here, right? Once they get out of your authority outside of your home, eh, you know, it's your guess as to what's going to happen, right? Um, but what Paul is after here is that an elder is one who's godly at home. And so as Christians, as, as a congregation, I want to remind you the reason why this sermon is being preached to you and not to a bunch of elders is because we are a congregational church. We are governed and ruled by the congregation. You have the authority. You're the one that, that calls elders and pastors, not merely me. It's your responsibility. And so what the world will tell you is you need a guy who's innovative, a guy who can put on a good show for you and can attract people. Sadly, you maybe even believe that what you need is a young pastor to bring young people in. But the truth is, is you need a guy who is godly at home. You need men shepherding you who are shepherding their wives and their children in godliness. That's what you need. Well, in verse 7 and 8, and I'm not going to go through all of these for because I'm just blowing through my time here. Um, verse 7 and 8, uh, you see here that an elder must be above reproach at heart. He lists first in verse 7 a list of negative characteristics that we must watch out for. He says, listen, when you're thinking about an elder, you've got to watch out for these. These are poison. This, this, this cancer right here, you put an elder in that has one of these problems, this is a, a sin in his life, he will infect everyone in the church, and then the church will be a church known for sin. So he says a pastor, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He, he must not be a free drinker. He must not be a heavy drinker, it says, but he must be, right? He must not be quick tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain, a lover of money, fond, the New American Standard of sordid gain. He's an honest man, right? A man who doesn't love the riches of this world. We see here warnings to us, things that maybe the world would pass over. How many leaders do you know today that are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who may meet some of these qualifications here in verse 7? Maybe perhaps even one that runs this country. Verse 8, look at these positive characteristics. Hospitable. 
In other words, I love the New Living Translation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, right? It's so funny, right? And you would not find this on any corporate document to say, you know, this is what we need in our next CEO. But this is what we need in the church. We need one who's, who's opening his home and loving people. A lover of good. Someone who loves the good and hates and despises evil. Someone who's under control. Who has his, his mind under control and his heart under control. One who's upright. One who's holy. Now to be clear, Paul is not saying that, that, that you need a pastor who's perfect. Because then only Jesus could be your pastor. Right? Now remember what the word holy means. The word holy means separate. It means set apart. It means different. He, he needs to be different than the world around he needs to be distinguished and different from the from the the Cretan culture where there are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He needs to be he doesn't need to be that. He needs to be set apart. Elders need to be disciplined. Wonder one whose emotions are under control. If an elder's emotions are not under control, sadly, what happens? Sheep are destroyed. God's people need to be led by godly leaders. But more than that, we see here also the second qualification for an elder. Look with me in verse 9. He must not only, they must not only be godly, but verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, he needs to be able to teach others. You'll find in 1 Timothy where Paul lists similar uh, qualifications for pastors, elders. Following that, he gives qualifications for deacons. And the only difference between the qualifications for pastors and deacons is the ability to teach. The ability to teach. An elder must be able to teach. Now, what does this mean? Clear. One thing I want to point out, this does not mean, I'll, I'll do it in the negative first, this does not mean that he has to be able to preach. Okay, let's be clear here. That does not mean he has to be the regular preaching pastor of the church. But he has to be one who can teach God's people, who has a sufficient grasp, right? Notice what he says, has a hold a hold that is firm, tight, on the trustworthy word, that is the gospel, as taught. Not how he thinks it should be, but as he was taught. In other words, he is to, pass, he is to take the baton that was given to him and not change it, but keep the same word and then pass that baton off to other elders as well. To raise up. He must have an unwavering con conviction and commitment to the words of Scripture. An elder must not only be winsome in ability to teach, right? There's a lot of good teachers in the church today. I can think of Joel Osteen. He's a good teacher. I like listening to him. He's good. I mean, you can listen to that guy for hours and feel really great about yourself. The, truth, the problem with him isn't that he can't teach. is that what he's teaching you ain't got nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing at all. So we must hold firm, steady, and teach. 
and refute. Not only be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, but also refute those who seek to distort it. Elders are those who have been given by God to shepherd His people, to feed them, not with innovation, not with worldly worldly wisdom, but with the unadulterated, unchanging Word of Christ. And we pray to that end. I pray to that end. I pray that there's never a day uh, from someone from this day forward preaching in this pulpit to this congregation that is unhinged or unhitched or or come loose from the, the words of Scripture. We want elders and preachers who preach and teach us God's Word faithfully. This is why we give ourselves to expositional preaching, which means you take the point of the passage, that's the point of the sermon, no innovation needed, and you apply it to the lives of God's people. That's what we want here. That's what we want to cultivate. That's what we want to raise up. Men who are, who are expositional teachers, who take the point of God's Word, bring it out, give it to you, and apply it to your lives. Friend, what are you looking for in an elder? Are you looking for a pastor who's godly? Or are you looking for a pastor or pastors who are up and on the latest business practices for the church. All the innovative things to attract people, to put on a show. Or are you looking for men who are faithful to their wives and children, who are holy? Brothers, sisters, you can pray for me to that end. Because trust me, I don't believe I measure to these standards. You can pray for me, that, that this would be me, that the, I, would, I would emulate godliness before you. And you can also give yourself to praying for godly elders. God, raise up men in my life so that they can lead me in holiness. Raise up men in our congregation who can shepherd us and can lead us to your truth and feed us. I mean, think about it. How awesome it would be to be fed, not by one pastor, but by a group of pastors every week who are, who are united together, co-laborers together, working together for your sake. How amazing it would be to have a group of men who are committed to one another in such a way as to keep their lives unstained from this world. How amazing it would be to have a group of elders who are thinking about every day and every week, praying together, thinking together, how they can love you better and shepherd you to glory. Brothers and sisters, the point that Paul is making here is that you need elders in your life in order to get you to godliness, to lead you in godly, to model godliness for you. Well, let me look at this last point very quickly. It will be quick and it will not do every justice to this to this paragraph, but I, want, I just want to give it to you quickly. Finally, number three, you need godly leaders to guard against ungodliness. We live in a world that is ungodly. I want to show, show you the world that Titus was going into. Look with me at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. In other words, this is coming from one of their own people. This isn't a, you know, someone from the, the mainland writing about how messed up these people are. This is one of their very own prophets, one of their very own leaders. This is what he has to say about Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What, what an epithet, right? 
They are always liars. They, they can't tell. I mean, if, you, if you push them into the corner, they can't even tell you the truth. Always liars. Evil beasts, right? I mean, beasts, they're, they're beastly. Lazy. Well, that defines us, I think, as, as Americans, I think, maybe a little bit more. Brothers and sisters, the church will always, until Jesus comes, be planted in a culture that is ungodly. It will always be in a location. right? There's no clean streets and everybody's got a smile and lives are together. There's no community in this world that doesn't need Jesus. And pastors must shepherd in these contexts and guard the sheep, right? Because here's what happens. The sheep are from that context. means they're going to act like that. Now, now I want you to get this. This is how the members of the church were acting, right? They were Cretans, right? The church was made up of Cretans that were what? They were, they were lazy, liars, evil beasts. This is who they were. Imagine, Paul's like, hey man, I just let you know how things are going to be down there for you, what the church is made up of. But they were people who were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the responsibility of godly elders is to go into a congregation, to shepherd these congregations, to silence false teachers, to rebuke false teachers, to stand up to cultural pressures, and to have a redemptive focus. I want you to see something here at verse 13. These, these elders that, that were being appointed were going into contexts that were hard, difficult, and they were going to face false teachers. Now, what were they to do with these false teachers? Were they to vilify them? Were they just to uh, you know, kick them out of the church? What, what were they to do to them? Notice what he says. He says, you are to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the ter- truth. In other words... These elders need to have a redemptive focus. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. The kind of elder you need is one who does not condemn, but one who always and forever is leading with the gospel. In other words, redemption is the goal in mind. In all shepherding contexts, we don't want pastors, elders, who are just kicking people out of the church without any hope of the gospel. Sometimes we do have to excommunicate. Sometimes that happens. But, but the point of the passage is this, that we need godly men who will have a redemptive focus that will keep the, the cultural pressures that will remove any platform for false teaching, but will, who will instruct and teach will be healthy. Well, finally, in verse 15 and 16, he gives us a a little detector test. He gives us a tool in verse 15 and 16. I want you to see it. It's a detector test. It's a way you can detect a false teacher. You know that the way the counterfeiters do it, right? Those that are inspecting counterfeit bills, right? They don't study counterfeits, right? We know they study the real thing. And the more they study the real thing, they can smell and pick up the counterfeit. They go, ah, that's not real. Just recently I was holding a $100 bill. I don't often hold $100 bills. And I was looking at it, and I was like, this, if you've ever seen one of those new ones, I'd show you, I wouldn't show you today. God, I don't have it anymore. Um, you know, it's all, it, this looks like a little kid made it, right? It, it's supposed to have innovative, you know, technology so that counterfeiters can't get it, get at it and stuff like that. But my thing is that, my point is this. If you would have showed me a counterfeit $100 bill, I would have said, yeah, that's a real $100 bill. Because I don't know what they look like. I don't ever see them. 
The point Paul is making is this. If you are led by godly leaders, if you are shepherded by godly pastors, you will be able to pick up on ungodly ones. You will be able to smell out false teachers. If you are surrounded by men who are faithfully feeding you God's word, you will be quick to smell out those who are false. Well, that's what he says there in verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You could say it this way. Holy hearts lead to holy living. That's Paul's point. When one is holy, it leads to holy living. And when your profession doesn't match your living, you're a fraud. You're a fake. You're an imposter. Brothers and sisters, we don't need those kind of elders. We need the right kind of leaders. We need men who are godly. Men who are shaped by the word of Christ. Men who want to pursue holiness at home and at heart. Jesus is called, he's equipped, and he's provided a plurality of men to shepherd his congregation. He's promised it. Will we by faith believe it? Jesus will never command you to do anything that he will not enable you to do. And if he's commanded us to do this, if this is his command, then he'll enable it. He'll make it happen. If we will believe by faith that this is what God desires for his church, for his glory, and for our good, then let's do it. Let's give ourselves to this and let's see what God, let's pray to that end. I conclude with where I began last week as I concluded 1 Samuel. God needed, God's people need godly leaders. They needed them in the Old Testament and they need them in the New Testament. And I began with 2 Samuel 23, those words of of David, and I want to conclude with him again because I want you to see the biblical purpose of godly leaders again. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. You see it? A godly leader who has what on his tongue? The word of God. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. Brothers and sisters, when you are, when you are shepherded, when you are led by godly men and godly uh, pastors, it results in blessings. It results in godliness. And my prayer, I hope it would be your prayer, is that God would raise up such men to lead us as a congregation, to shepherd us for our good and for his eternal praises. Let's pray. God, much could have been said more about this word. I pray that your people were fed. I pray that we would obey your word. Convince us of these. Compel us, Lord, to obey. Help us, we pray, to understand for your glory, for our good in Christ. Amen.